Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Bilge Pumps. We can all be slightly worried. There are apparently roughly 60,000 of you or more who on average listen to us each week. So thank you. And I'm not sure whether I should make a joke about please checking your medications now. But What's the famous William Shatner quote? Get a life. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, I was going to go was we almost have an army worthy of Mordor. Almost, <laughs> almost. Um, we, we, we certainly have an army worthy of China in the uh, a, a bit larger than China managed to produce in the first Sino-Japanese war. Anyway, leaving that to one side, this week we are joined by Paul from World War Two TV. We have me. Dr. Clark, we have Jamie from our carriers, and we have Drakenafel from everything, including soon the flamethrower Drakenafel. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have a good mix. But we have the amazing Paul from Model 2 TV. And if you haven't seen his channel, go and look at it on YouTube. It is excellent. Um, I've done a thing on Norway uh, with him, and that was really, really cool. And Paul, that is a really, really nice guy. And We've already decided he fits very disturbingly well with bilge pumps, so we're going to attempt to keep to time, but we might all lose track of time. So <laughs> we'll give that heads up as we're going in. Anyway, today's topic is myths and in history, and it's when, as Paul actually put before we decided this, when the myth becomes the accepted truth, is it the true history, or is it still a myth? You know, and. This is the, the topic of this thing, because are we learning the correct things or the wrong things from history? Because if you talk about the myths in aircraft carriers, which always comes up, which one of the things which me and Jamie have fun talking about, is the obsession of people with number of aircraft on an aircraft carrier. That doesn't matter so much as your sortie rate, i.e. how much you can make that air wing do. If you have 90 aircraft and you can only launch them once a day, that's great. You have 90 aircraft sorties. But if you have 48 aircraft and you can get two to three sorties from them a day, well, you're then going to have nearly 140 sorties. And that's probably going to beat the aircraft with 90 sorties. That's that's the scenario you're dealing with very much through history and modern times. This is one of the things which is interesting when you talk about British aircraft carriers model two, because they always have smaller air groups, but they usually have a higher sortie rate. So. Basically, we're dealing with myths. And before I start going on to my whole spiel about aircraft carriers, I'm going to shut up and let someone else talk. <laughs> so who wants to talk? Paul, introduce yourself a bit. Well, hello, and th thank you for letting me join in the, um, the whatever it is this is we're doing, because I haven't really been here before. You know? um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm a, I'm a tour guide, so I, I do history as well, but I'm essentially relating the history of the Battle of Normandy to people with every level of interest and knowledge from knowing nothing up to people who can list off, you know, landing craft serial numbers. But the problem is you're facing the fact that with the Battle of Normandy, and I guess with a lot of the World War II battles, people come with their pre-packaged ideas of what happened. And you have to spend, or the question is, do you spend time stripping away what they think they know and then relayering and rebuilding the truth? Or in some cases, do you just go with, reinforcing what they want to believe because at the end of the day i'm someone who gets paid to do this 
And you don't want to piss them off and say, but everything you know is wrong, because that's mm-hmm. not a good way of getting yourself in with your um, your client base. So, mm-hmm. it and it's getting worse and worse. When I started in Normandy 20 years ago, I was one of 10 tour guides, none of whom did World War II exclusively. And I started becoming the one, the, one of the ones who was only really doing World War II. Now there's 150 of us in Normandy. Okay, not so much now because of COVID. And... And the, the repetition of bullshit has just exploded. But the weird thing is the acceptance of the bullshit that some people give doesn't doesn't get challenged because they don't know they the customers don't know enough to challenge it. So you can say anything you want really. And if you have a, this sort of authority of being a guy, they they believe you. And so I've I've been going back recently and looking at all some of the stuff I was saying 20 years ago and realizing where did it come from? Where did these where did these anecdotes come from? And realizing I haven't got sources for most of them. So I, I I've been guilty of repeating myths. But yeah, this is an interesting conversation because I don't know that the it's, public in some cases care. I think it's you know I suppose on one level it's endemic of many different layers of society isn't it really from Mm -hmm. from the from your news to your politics um you know uh, through to your history now it's it it it, they they say post-truth world but uh i I guess it's true you know it's where 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 the it it takes a lot of courage to challenge a, a, um, a preconception because often that's been sort of molded into a person's individual belief system so when you zero in on a particular belief of something that happened at normandy or how a particular air- aircraft flew you're actually tapping into so much more than just normandy or an aircraft and as you say that's where where things get very very difficult but at the same time if you don't challenge it then you have you end up with a distortion that, um, okay, it becomes mythology. It becomes, you know, it goes beyond that legend into mytho- legendary into mythology. And mm. from mythology, you can walk away with a completely wrong understanding of how things work and what happened. Yeah, um, and, and I guess there are plenty of examples of them. I think we have to we have to draw a certain um, a line between what I would call the harmless mythology and the mythology that can actually cause major problems because uh, taking Normandy as an example, um, if you, I guess if you've got a customer with you uh, and, and he's like, Oh yes, well my, my, my grandfather or my father landed on this beach and it's so great to be here to see, to see what he was experiencing. He was off on the first wave, etc." if for some reason you happen to know that actually that particular unit was maybe in the second or third wave, does it make a tremendous amount of difference? The guy was still there on the first day. The fact that he wasn't the first man ashore doesn't actually change anything or, or in the grand scheme of things. So it's, it's probably not really worth trying to technically correct what's technically an error. But conversely, if you have somebody who um, maybe it will sit there and say that the the naval shore bombardment was 100% effective and every single thing larger than a machine gun nest that had been blown into tiny pieces. That is completely incorrect. And um, 
would need correcting because that's the kind of thing that could then potentially further down the line lead to someone going, oh, well, if at Normandy we were able to completely annihilate the enemy's heavy counter battery fire support in minutes with a naval bombardment, then surely in our future amphibious operations with our more advanced weapons, we can plan to completely destroy the enemy's um, at these days surface surface missile emplacements therefore we will be safe and then that's the kind of thinking where someone then sails a an lpd or an lhd full of troops straight into a barrage of silkworms but it's carrying ship to shore missiles now yeah for all the good no, that, no, no, that, that is half the problem i swear <laughs> someone's watched world war ii movies and gone there used to be landing craft with rocket launchers so what we now want to do is we now want to put rocket launchers on our landing platforms. And you're going, no, you really don't. You really don't. And also, there is the huge debate with Normandy, of course, over which ship fired the first, uh, fired the first round. Mm. And it's always weighted between the battleships. But I know from some of the destroyer accounts that they started, in, they started because they were closer in shore, they started engaging about the same time so theoretically could have engaged more as they were being engaged by machine guns and things from shore they were returning far but we of course considered bombardment begins when warspite or there's one of the town class cruisers which is the other option isn't it mm. i think fires the first shot gloucester. no no not gloucester and it's okay. a case of it, 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 it that's the thing but well the destroyers does, offer, it, does it it doesn't matter but it's also part of which sits there and goes, well, it gets it's part of the focus in World War Two, which you and I will do love to talk about in that World War Two, the amount of times it's it's a battle when a battleship turns up. But if there isn't a battleship there, oh, it's just part of the Mediterranean campaign. You're looking at it going, there were 30 ships involved from both sides, kicking the living out of each other. This was just not a convoy. This was not just a little convoy a skirmish. Mm. This was a full on battle, but it's not a battle because a battleship wasn't there. So they don't get a battle on it. And that becomes True. an entire thing. I mean, I, I, for my, my channel, I'm thinking of in starting a line of merchandise with T-shirts saying, nuance is the new sexy, because that <laughs> is something that's been coming up in my conversations, because that's that's where people don't have the time to go into that level of nuance. So if we let's take the naval bombardments, which you brought up. What te would tend to happen in normal is people would say, it missed completely, or it was brilliant. That that they're, they're the two two things people would say. Neither of which are true. Um, but the time to expand on that and go into that level of nuance, because then you've got to break it down by beach, then you've got to break it down by timings, then you've got to break it down by flotilla. You know, you're suddenly going down a rabbit hole that you haven't got time to go down. And I like your point about the vet, a veteran, a veterans phone, because that's happened, well, I was smiling when you were saying that, because that's happened to me so many times and my colleagues, you get an email from someone and they're saying, we're coming to, coming to Normandy because great uncle Fred was, was on, let's say Utah beach on D-Day and we want to see where he was. And they give you the unit and he was, let's say the ninth division or the 83rd division. So you go, okay, so that's D plus 10, D plus 12, D plus whatever. And, and you emailed back and said, yep, yeah, we can do that. That was the ninth division. They came ashore four or five days after D-Day. They pushed up towards the center. No, no, he came ashore on D-Day. And then you have to explain to them that what's happened in their family is that they know that great uncle Fred landed on Utah Beach in Normandy. 
he died years ago, but they have added the D-Day bit because that's what they assume. They assume that if you land in Normandy, it must be D-Day. And then you end up pissing them off because you're telling them that it wasn't D-Day and you can sense the kind of hostility coming back at you. You go, no, but the 9th Division were part of the unit that helped cut off the Plinster. They pushed up to Cherbourg. They were very important. They had fought in North Africa, but they don't want to hear that. That's when they, they're now resenting you for being the one to, 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 to puke on their party at a, a carpet at a party, you know, because you've just upset them. So do you, do, you, do you then not bother to say it at all? You just, you just go with what they want to do. Which is ex- so that's the that's the confusing thing. Do you do you risk losing the gig? Do you risk losing the client because you're telling them the truth? And you realize how quickly these little things in their families become rooted. Um, and that's the difficulty when you compete with it. I had a, I had a Marty Morgan who's appeared on my show. He's appeared on We Have Ways of Making You Talk with J- James Holland and Al Murray. He's one of my best mates in the states, and he um. He called me in a panic. He was with a tour group, and he, he was with a veteran. The veteran had an, one of those jackets American veterans have, all embroidered up with battle honors and stuff on the back. And um, from, if memory serves me correctly, he was was sixth uh, armor division. He might have been tenth armor division. Either way, Marty called me from the beach and said, "Just I know the answer to this, but just tell me the sixth armor division didn't come ashore on D Day, did they?" And I'm like, "Well, no, of course they didn't come ashore. Yeah, and I know that, but." There's, he's got a jacket with D-Day on the, embroidered on the back by the fam. He's telling his family how he was part of the force coming ashore and blatting away at these bunkers. And I don't know what to tell them because they're filming him, they're, they're, they're enjoying it. And I go, and I said, well, what have you been employed for today, Marty? Are you, have you been employed as a historian or have you been employed as a tour guide? He said, well, today I've been employed as a tour guide to escort a family back to Norman. I said, well, then it's not your duty today to tell this veteran he's lying. If, if you were asked to do an article about this veteran for a magazine, then it is it does become your duty to say that he can't have come ashore on D-Day. But on this, in this particular moment, you've got a role. And you, as annoying as it is to you to not want to challenge it, yes, you're going to have no, to go with it. It's an extremely good point. But it's interesting because it, it, it goes right back to writing that article that you referred to as well. Uh, I, I, I in particular like to um, find and reference first-person accounts um, because it conveys the a sense of having lived the experience, and it's it's very very clear that their personal experience is usually very very accurate, very very detailed, very very evocative. But particularly when it comes to naval combat, you also have to remember that this guy was locked up. In deep in the bowels of the ship, looking at his radar screen or his um, plot board, so he knew exactly what the the, um, the fighter aircraft were doing and what position the ships were in. But he knows nothing about you know the, um, what happened just out just outside the door, and he's had to rely on accounts being filtered to him through the you know with the whisper system and the 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 the, the Having a chat over the uh, the rum ration kind of um, system, so very quickly this guy who was there has got a distorted picture, um, either through boastfulness or just through contraction of facts or conflation of facts, and yet that person will naturally be seen as an authority on that matter, as opposed to being a authority on his role in the matter. 
Um, so it's actually very hard I, when I produce my videos, which um, give first-person accounts of uh, either an aircraft or a battle, to create a, an overview of that event because a lot of the backgrounding that these guys provide is wrong. And that's where it comes to how you how you extrapolate what a veteran says in an oral history to use the bits of it that are that's right correct quote unquote and not use the bits that are wrong that's right. there's this, another story so i'm hogging it but there was an american veteran uh who claimed he was a ranger at point du hoc um and he, he, he passed away just a few weeks ago and he was outed a couple of years ago anyway when i first met him and, it, and his story was completely plausible um is a replacement officer joining, I think it was E Company, Second Rangers. And I was asking him some very specific questions that I had because I'd never met an officer from the Point du Hoc battle before. I only met, you know, the lower guys. And there's a particular stuff, you know, if you're familiar with the Point du Hoc, and it's a na- it is a naval story because it happens in a ward room. So I, I'm fitting into the topic here. <laughs> He's on the ship. And this is when Colonel Radder, the commander of the, of the Rangers, um, is, is calling some people in there. And the original commander, who's supposed to lead the Rangers in at Point du Hoc, Lytell, his name was Captain Lytell, had been drinking heavily. And he kind of, this is the this is not the veteran's version that was telling me, this is, this is the accepted version that this guy had had a few drinks and was running around the ship telling everybody we're all going to die we're all going to die we're all going to die and he was relieved of command from major actually was posted to the 90th division later and it earns two silver stars in 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 the eto which is interesting anyway a captain was promoted to take on the mission and blah 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 anyway so i'm asking this veteran do you remember the incident when lytel um came in and did this and he gave a description of the wardroom where he was describing where he was sitting the doorway he was describing watching the horizon go up and down out the uh, you know the, all these elements the the jingle of the of the uh, the cutlery and the cups on the tray in front of him the everything the smell of the sea all this and he explained it all and how Lytell came in and I'm kind of lapping this up because it was the first time I'd heard this and um it turned out he was a fake. It turned out he was a World War II veteran. He was in an artillery unit in Northern Ireland on D-Day. But what had happened, and this is what makes it so interesting, is that his version of the events was really, really good because he'd studied it and studied it for like 20 years to build this story. So he had selected the very best bits of, of the accounts and actually was giving a really good version of the story, except he wasn't there him personally. Now, the irony is when you do meet a veteran, as you said there, Jamie, often their memories are all mixed up. But they were there, but they're a least reliable witness than a guy who wasn't there, who's learned it properly, which sort of begins this paradox of, yes. of the fraud being a better historian, but the real yes. guy giving you the emotional content of what it was like to be there. And this is why sometimes over the years I realize we did, I did a couple of historiography shows on my channel uh, two weeks ago. The 20 years on, I know less about the Battle of Normandy now, I think, than I did when I started. Because I'm at the bottom of some kind of 
I've been on a kind of a high of a, of a of a hill of knowledge, and now I'm realizing everything I thought I knew. I'm unraveling. I'm going. I'm meeting more people. I'm learning. I'm getting middle aged and grumpy and cynical as well. And I'm going backwards. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm, I'm... Me and Track got there when we were about teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> so now, <laughs> I, I, now I'm stuck with. Can someone leave yes. one of the stories I've been telling for twenty years alone and not tell me it's false, <laughs> please? Because, you know. It's just getting to that point now. So this mm. is why. What's the value of exposing all this stuff? What? Why? What are we trying to do with history? What we want people to understand well, the past. I, I guess it's that's the point, isn't it? So, so, but surely, surely Normandy is one of the most studied subjects in naval war colleges and you know uh, marine war colleges, army war colleges around the world. Yeah. Yeah, but they teach twaddle. Mm. Literally, I think, every I, unit you so, go to but, will teach its mythology of. Of um, Normandy. If you, I swear, if you went into the Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard Naval Academy, they would spend the whole time telling you all about their landing craft, not about why they were delivering the people, not around the ships that were supporting everything. They would spend the whole time focusing on landing craft. You go into the Royal Navy offices, and they won't tell you anything because the British do not do not um, study victories in their war colleges, only defeats. That's all we focus on. It is one of those weird things. If you ever go into Sandhurst or anything like that, you'll find them. You look at the course content, and you'll go, "You do not study a single one of the battles we won here." How do you turn out troops who come out who are superlatively confident for second lieutenants when all they've discussed, uh, they've studied, are things we've lost? Well, at least they know now what not to do. That's the point. <laughs> That's where their confidence yeah. comes from. But if you I, go I, to the US Army one, it's obsessed over the Ranger accounts and Easy Company of the 101st. I swear, the entire reason the 101st has it, it, the Americans fight tooth and nail not to cut that unit is because of the story of Easy Company from Band of Brothers as put together by Stephen Ambrose, which even according to the veterans who wrote their own accounts and Dan Winter, um, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dan, uh, Dan Winters, actually Dick wrote Winters, his own Dick accounts. Winters, yeah. Dick Winters, I'm sorry, I got him down. And, I, and I, by the way, I knew most of those guys, so I, yeah. I you know, yeah. Yeah, and his, account, his, his actual book came out the same time as Ambrose's, and I went through them and went, Okay, I know people are going to be believing television and reading Ambrose's book, but even Dick Winter's book doesn't say he did that, that Ambrose is saying he did. And it's a case of... But I can tell you which version is taught in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Army Academy. Well, I, I, think, I think... Actually, just to interrupt there, yeah. that has never been the... There's a, there's a myth... Mm -hmm. Every time you read an account about Dick Winters, Easy Company, Brecor Manor, Normandy, they say it's taught at West Point. It never has been, except only when it fulfilled its own myth, because it came up in discussion at West Point when people would say, when are we going, when are we going to do the Dick Winters <laughs> action, sir? And so from that point on, they started mentioning it to say that we have never taught it. It was never taught at, Dick, uh, at West Point. But that is repeated from Ambrose I onwards. You see, I know something about that myth, which I can add to something interesting onto you. It wasn't taught in the general uh, general course at uh, West Point, but for a few years, he was a colonel in charge of training paratroopers during the Korean and into the Vietnam War yep. era. era. Yep. And 
he uh, it was uh, while he was there there was an uh, there was a prep parachute training course which was taught there which did include it but it was for those officers who were going paratroop only and it was literally a few weeks uh sort of additional lectures for those officers who are going paratroopers but that was it and i think it was only taught for about four years but the only reason i know that is because one of my friends an obsessive historian of um oh you've just mentioned it and it's gone completely out of my head of west point yeah. and is the walking talking living breathing history and went yes it's there quite true it's never been taught as part of the course and said the same thing but there was this one course which was there and the reason it was added in there was because dick winters was the guy who pretty much wrote the course and he wasn't given any materials because they didn't have any accounts. So he had to use his own experience to write the course because that was the only material he had. <laughs> so that's why it was there. Not because it was his perfect battle, because it was the only thing he had. Yeah. And, and this is this is the fascinating thing of myths becoming self-fulfilling proper prophecies. That, that means, is it therefore a, a myth then becomes a truth because it's been repeated. It's it's a very complicated thing, and as I say, I'm I'm stuck now knowing less than I used to know. And what's yeah. the point? What is, what's the point of me spending my time banging my head against a wall to try and get across these things when actually no one cares and it doesn't matter? You know, I mean, other talk about going being at the naval side of things. Like this time last year, I just come back from San Nazaire. A few tour guides went down there, spent a couple of days there. So we did, we did. Um, Obviously, the, the 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 raid side of things, but we also toured some of the Atlantic War positions. There's a museum there, and I forget the name of the village it's in. And they opened up the bookshop for us there. Um, so this was pre-season. This is before we knew how bad COVID was going to affect things. And I was, I think, I was the only Brit. The rest were French. And anyway, we looked at the, the content of the book. There was not in this huge bookshop. There was not a single book. I promise you about the exploits in any shape or form of the Royal Navy in the Battle Atlantic. Every book that was on sale there was about U-boats and U-boat commanders, breaking it down to a level of detail I didn't know existed about U-boat roles. These big A3, very expensive, kind of niche published books, and it breaking down individual... I mean, it was like one, one submarine in and out was broken into like three volumes. You're thinking this is just three days they're covering in this book. And all it is, is just photos of a fucking submarine going out of a Harbor and then coming back again. I mean, it's, but nothing on it, but it's nothing, no, no Mark Milner, no Ian Ballantyne, no, uh, um, breakdown of, of, of the stages of the battle Atlantic, not even a lady, but not even James Holland's Ladyburg book about the battle of the uh, Atlantic. It was all about the German side of things. So, so that's not a myth, but it's a it's an obsession about mm. something that is pushing this idea to the average member of the public who goes into this museum that the the, the Kriegsmarine and the, the U-boat flotillas were the dominant factor in naval history in the ETO. I suppose is what that shop is saying. Oh yeah, welcome to our joy. The amount of times I'm told by people, oh yes, the German submarines were amazing, and I'm going, um. And the British had to do a crash building program to beat them. And it was all emergency and everything. And you hear the flower class Corvettes, they were, you know, they were ordered and built within two months. They were ordered and built in two months. The British ordered the first flower class Corvettes in July 1938. 
Those ships are not ordered and built in two months. They're not thrown together. This is not a crash building program. The Royal Navy's worked out what it needed to fight the submarines. The fact is it was thinking it was it had, and it had been told it had, a few more years to prepare for war. Because the politicians kept putting on a 10-year rule where they didn't expect war for 10 years. So the Royal Navy was concentrating on building the big things, which take longer to build because your average aircraft carrier battleship or cruiser will take three or four years to build. Your smaller ship you can crank out in a year or two years, which, believe it or not, is not a long time. And that's in peacetime build mode when you're not doing you're not doing emergency construction and not pushing it through. So the, the Battle Atlantic is one of those mythologized wars and parts of World War Two. And then you forget that people forget. go the great debate then comes. I go. So if the Kriegsmarine was so important, how come more of the Royal Navy's facing off against the Rager Marina than the Kriegsmarine? And why can the Royal Navy then produce quite a large fleet for the Indian Ocean and the Eastern Fleet when it's fighting the Kriegsmarine, which apparently are so all-conquering and scary? And you, you start, people go, but, oh, the Royal Navy didn't. That was the Americans over in the Pacific. Well, no, it wasn't the Americans in the Pacific. It was the Brits in the Indian Ocean. And it was the Brits excuse me, in the Med. And it was the Brits in the Atlantic. And if you look at Operation Torch, yes, it's the American troops being landed, mostly by British manned ships. And the reason they're mountain landing American troops is because after Merzeg Kabir, they're fairly sure the French would not be that glad to see Brits. But the Brits still go and do several operations as part of Operation Torch because the Americans go, we haven't been blooded and these are going to be very nasty operations. So would you please send your veterans? But Operation Torch <laughs> is an American operation, I'm always told. It's American troops being brought. And it's American, American. And I go, no. It's actually cooperation. How, how are we quantifying myths? What, what, what's our criteria for a myth? And what, when, when is just a detail mistake a mistake? I mean, for example, if, you're, if your guys are, uh, are looking at a documentary on, uh, about, I don't know, fairy swordfishes or something, mm -hmm. and you see a photo used in a documentary that shows a, a, a Mark Six and it should be a Mark Five of something, you know. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm. That's a detail. That's a level of detail that you would notice, but that is unimportant to the storytelling of the documentary. So no. that's not a myth, is it? No. But when, when does is... an error become? What's the difference between error and myth? What, what, the myth you, with what, the fairy you... swordfish is that it's an obsolete biplane which should have been in mm. World War One. I, I think. I think yes. where, no, where, that, where, that's where, the myth. Yeah, where it goes from error to myth at least in my mind, is when it goes pretty much what you said is that when it goes from does this actually affect what we're talking about to it actually does affect our understanding both of that incident and potentially of stuff in the future. Because, yeah, if, as I say, like, if, I don't know, um, if someone is talking about the swordfish and they, they're talking about the attack on the Bismarck and they show a swordfish Mark II with the metal metal um underskins on the un on the lower wings so they can launch rockets and stuff which is not what victorious and arc royal were throwing at bismarck yes it's an error but it doesn't actually affect affect anything it's they're showing a swordfish it was a swordfish that attacked the fact that this particular swordfish is not an example of the particular swordfish that attacked bismarck is irrelevant unless you are specifically making that claim that this particular aircraft did it and, and and that's just a matter of 
of editing it's it's very easy to say swordfish like this one attacked that's perfectly accurate this swordfish attacked is wrong but but that's that's error that doesn't change the fact that Bismarck was attacked by swordfish doesn't change the fact you're talking about it whereas the sort of, I think the boundary would be kind of if you were to say uh, the, the Bismarck was attacked by British aircraft and then you showed a picture of an albacore or a barracuda or you for some reason not known to, to God nor men decided to show a picture of a US Navy Avenger because at that point it's it you're making a, a rather serious mistake and people could come away thinking either that a a US Navy Avenger is British or b that the barracuda or the albacore were the things involved and that's that that's where you start to start to tread the line i think because if someone then becomes mm. more interested and they want to look into it more and they go oh yes well i remember i saw this aircraft this is the aircraft that attacked bismarck and then they look at say the ferry barracuda and go well, hang on that wasn't in service at the time bismarck was attacked was what, what's going on that's where it becomes who, somewhat who dangerous. would be who would who would be affected by that from what you, that example you just gave so the average member of the public would just see a flying thing with wings mm, and it yeah. wouldn't matter to that person whether it's a swordfish a, a barracuda yeah. or, a, no. or a or or a concord yeah but then there's the other people who do know aircraft types really mm. really well who would mm. immediately in their in their brain spot that and go ah oh, yes i guess the program yeah. makers didn't have a footage of a so and so so they yeah. used that there so that's from actually from six months later but that's okay mm -hmm. i've processed that that's fine yeah. i see where they're going yeah. with that who would who what think, what person would be tripped up by that to cause a problem? My I, view I, about the myth, and can mm, I just point uh, put this one in? Is I'm less worried about that sort of thing, that mm. sort of example, because I think as you Paul points out, you can experts can find out. But I'm more worried about things like fairy by uh, the fairy swordfish was a biplane, therefore it's obsolete. Therefore the British were, ba were backwards in their technology in World War Two. And therefore, the uh, what you, matters is your, how technologically advanced your aircraft is. And I think this feeds into the F-35 and all the other projects we've got going on, which are obsessed with being the highest techie tech we can get them. And, actually, and there is actually, there, there's, also, there's also a side effect to that myth. And it's really very pronounced if you go out there to, to your bookshops and buy general overview books on carrier warfare during World War II. You will find that most... British carrier actions are dismissed within one or two sentences, while a minor carrier action involving the Japanese and the um, Americans will take up two or three chapters. And that's the side effect of the dismissive attitude towards the quote-unquote obsolete backwards um, you know, equipment that the fleet air arm had. Now, as Dr. Clark will tell you, there was a reason why they had the biplanes, and that was so that they could fly those biplanes at night. And there was a reason why they wanted to fly biplanes at night, and that was because that was how they considered they would destroy the enemy's carriers before they could put themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. So that entire element of very important tactical thinking has been lost in translation or lost in the myth creation. Yeah, and I think this this is what I was kind of trying to build towards. In that, where you start to get where it starts to enter the realm of the the myth is where it starts to have second and third order effects down the line. So the the description I was going to say putting a fairy barracuda in, yeah, it's it's not quite a myth, 
but it's starting to get towards that because mm. someone like the kind of people I try and engage in my channel because my channel is is at its core the original foundation of it was to try and get more people interested in naval history so if I were to do that then a it affects my credibility because if someone then becomes interested and tries to do more research they realize that was wrong and if that was wrong then what else was I wrong about and secondly it can it can shake it, it can mislead people and cause them to go down the wrong tangent because I say like, if someone then starts researching further they can go well hang on but that, that wasn't in service that doesn't add up what's going on and then they either start to doubt themselves or they doubt the source that they're looking at when the source they're looking at might actually be correct because we all know the kind of the bias people get when they read something the first time they're convinced by it it's very hard to shake them even if you show them 10 sources that say otherwise so that's kind of a borderline one it's not quite a myth but it's getting towards having that kind of effect and then as uh, I'll, jamie and dr clark yeah. have said once you start getting this they say like the swordfish was obsolete and all the stuff that then leads out of that the conclusions that people make based on that one erroneous statement that's when it enters the realm of myth because it starts to build up it's literally its own mythology around it that affects and lots of other different health because the swordfish is followed up by the albacore which is truly terrible the Albacore I mean, truly I, 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 is terrible, but we'll leave that to I, one side. I, I will one-up um, uh, here and mm. say that my uh, website, Armoured Carriers, was created precisely because of mythology. Um, I, as an Australian, was raised on a very um, you know, rich diet of US and Japanese Pacific warfare. And, you know, everything was about the Essex-class carriers and the Battle of Midway and Coral Sea saved Australia and so forth and so forth and so forth. And, you know, for the first 25, 30 years of my life, I suppose, out of that, probably 15 years was a, a carrier nut. Um, as a kid, um, I, I, all these little mentions, one or two sentences of, of, of um, uh, British carriers had had never really amounted to anything. I didn't know anything about them at all, except a bit about Ark Royal because it has a fancy name. Um, but then it was there was a point in the late 90s, early 2000s when books came out about um, the USS Bunker Hill and the USS Franklin, the 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 horrible um, experiences those carriers went through with kamikaze hits, and uh, I found that utterly fascinating. And you know, just just the the, the the drama of those stories and those events and the, and the survival of the, those crews. And those stories would often include a one or two sentence throwaway line about HMS Illustrious having been bombed uh, in the Mediterranean, which I hardly knew happened. And, you know, it was usually fairly dismissive, you know, about its armoured flight deck and it being, you know, it's, its hull being warped and all, all this kind of thing. You know, so one day I just happened to pick up a little old paperback at a op shop about HMS Illustrious and read it, and it completely said exactly the opposite to everything I've been reading for a decade and a half about British carrier aviation. It was basically, you know, a, a compilation of um, first-person accounts of the people that were aboard the Illustrious. So from that point, I thought, well, hang on. I'm upset. I'm annoyed. I'm mad. Why didn't I know this? Why is everything that's in my books that I've just gone back to my bookshelf to check factually wrong, as in raw fact wrong? 
uh, and then I spent several years going through building up as accurate a, a um, picture as I could, going so far as an obsessed sort of a per, um, nut would as to get you know the, the damage reports that were created by the U.S. naval architects in what while they were repairing the the, sh the ship. So from that. There's just um, there's basically 50 years of having ignored. I can see that it's basically 50 years of having ignored the experiences learnt by these ships, by their design, by their um, the tactics that they employed and developed, um, developed fighter direction, because they had small air wings which had a rapid um, sortie rate that led to and the, with, with radar. Um, Another subject of mythology here is the Fulmar fighter, a twin-seat fighter, a fighter that was designed to be a reconnaissance fighter. Um, it's always bit put in the context of, not always, but it's often put in the context of Corsairs and of Hellcats, which came three years later when the Fulmar was fighting in the Mediterranean. The F-3F flying barrel biplane was the United States Navy's frontline fighter. You mention that to a lot of people, and I get the sort of reaction that you get when you say that actually, no, your Marine Division, your um, Army Division landed on D-Day plus 10, not D-Day itself. And you get the same reaction. How, how, how dare you consider that we had a biplane as our frontline fighter when you had that obsolete piece of crap called a Fulmar? And that obsolete piece of crap for the, called the Fulmar was the first all-metal um, monoplane folding um, naval aircraft in the world. So, yeah, it was a very rapid time of change. But that got dismissed, and the lessons that that, that the lessons learnt from that aircraft and its context has been cast aside. And here we are in a, in a world where we're looking at having to fight um, in a under in an area denial environment, an area where aircraft will always be in range, land-based aircraft will always be in range, where you're in you're facing missiles incoming and so forth. Now, that's the sort of experience that the armoured carriers had during World War II, but nobody knows that. Hmm. So and that's why they say things like it's unprecedented and no one knows how to deal with this history this event because we know and know something and there's us sitting there going have you know none of you actually bothered to study the Mediterranean in World War Two? Have none of you bothered to? What happened in the Mediterranean? It was just some convoy battles. And, and at this which is, point, usually yeah. Drac or Jamie has to start holding me, or I have to hold them, depending on which one it's said <laughs> to. And, and this, this is this Sorry. is where the mythology really, really can start to have harmful effects because if you look at pretty much, with with a few minor exceptions, but pretty much all. For example, carrier design in the modern era, almost all of it is derived from the lessons and the tactics that were used in the Pacific. Um, and especially the pop for the pop culture imagination of how it all works is all based on the pop culture perception of the Pacific War. Big alpha strikes, massive numbers of aircraft, uh, the whole basically kind of a midway or Philippine Sea style battle um, where, every, where everything is decided in one day and you've either won or lost and that's that's it. 
Um, I would argue whereas... there is one strand of carrier design which isn't, and that's the British one, which is the only one which is kept. Because right? still to this day, we have surprisingly small air wings or hangars for our large carriers, and that's. <clears throat> there are many reasons. I'm sure they have it. I'm sure it's not they have armour. But, but the, well, this positions. is the thing. This is the funny thing because when you look at the U.S. Navy immediately after the Second World War, well, and then right at the very end of the Second World War, when they're building things like the Midways and the Forestals, they are much like the British were doing with the Maltas before they got cancelled. They are hybridising the lessons of the Pacific and the lessons of the Mediterranean and the North Atlantic. They're building big American-style open hangar carriers, but with armoured flight decks, British style. And the U.S. Navy has kind of kept that going to a certain degree. The Nimitzes and the Fords and the Kitty Hawks, etc. They they all have this this armoured flight deck. Albeit, okay, fair enough. These days you're not dropping five hundred pound or thousand pound bombs on on flight decks, but it's still there. So there's elements of that. But as time has gone on and the mythology has grown up about how the only serious carrier war was the one in the Pacific, people who have now grown up with that are now the people in charge of making the decisions in a lot of navies about how they should or shouldn't use carriers or even have carriers. And that's where it starts to become dangerous because the people who were actually there, the people who were evaluating the actual reports, the people who are then making the decisions for things like Midway, Forrestal, Kitty Hawk, uh, etc., they are no longer either alive, period, or they're retired. And so that kind of you can have the kind of pop culture mythology as long as it doesn't affect your actual strategic decision making in the actual military but give a myth enough time to grow and eventually the people who grew up on the myth are now the ones making the decisions and that's that's where it starts to become dangerous and that's where it starts to become the kind of the where you need to step in and go and actually no that's not how it was you need to learn what the history actually was and I just want to jump in a bit because we you know we're talking about specific examples of myths and but yeah. the, the the myth phenomenon. Okay, so let's let's look at the the uh, the analogy of drink driving. Okay, um, because I want to. Okay, mm-hmm. so most yeah. of us we don't drink drive. Okay, so we 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 find then uh, one at the other end are the people who absolutely the professionals who know the impact of drink driving. They're the people who who work in ERs, the ones who drive ambulances, they're the, they're the firefighters that have to cut people out of cars, who absolutely know, who are the ones completely reinforcing to everybody else what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, the dangers of this. The people who are the problem are the the the, the people who just don't give any thought about it, or the ones who just... I, I can be driving out knowing I haven't had anything to drink, but I might meet idiot coming the other way who's had 17 pints and driving the other way. Now, that's with the mythology side of things. The ambulance, dri- the ambulance drivers, the ER crews, they are the people like yourself. You sit there with a huge great art library of books. You've got all your archives. You're the ones who are looking at these issues, challenging them, comparing data, drawing up things and saying, this thing here is not true. We are per- perpetuating this. The great mass of the people, though, who are reading books and watching TV, and I mean this without any disrespect towards them, are watching a documentary, reading a book, and then when they've closed that book, they're going and putting the TV on and watching an episode of Seinfeld in 1997. The information they've got, it's not going beyond what they've just done. The dangerous group, and it's a very small group, are those 1% who are influential with regards to their perpetuating of the myths. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, an example being, I listened to a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago by a guy who's written several books, and it was about the Germans in Normandy. You know, that is my thing. I'm in Normandy. I'm satisfied. And I was listening to it because it was a respected podcast. Within two minutes, I had filled up my bullshit cliches of things about Germans bingo card <laughs> of just the the same old myths to get. They were all young. They were all young. They were all old men. They were all they were sickness batans that Hitler was asleep. I mean, I could go on with them all. And I was shouting at the screen doing this. See, he's the person who, for whatever reason either doesn't have access to these archives or these books or is ignoring them, which is even, I don't know which is the worst. He either isn't trying mm. or he's looking at information and can't, hasn't got the critical thinking skills to realize it's bullshit and is perpetuating his myths for in arrogant, arrogantly, mm. or he's stupid and he thinks he's, he knows it. Either way, he's the dangerous one. Because, or, and that, yes. There's always the option not many of those them. people who go, who reads a book and only remembers the information which backs up the opinion he started that book with. Yeah. In so the order that backs up his opinion. So we're talking about these myths, but actually these myths are only taking hold with a tiny percentage of the world. But that mm. tiny percentage, if they have the ability to get publishing deals run podcasts, have YouTube channels, are perpetuating these myths in a That's dangerous right. way. And but how do we who... target such a small a small yeah. number of people? Baseball bats. I guess you can. Baseball bats, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The problem is the people that consume those things are your politicians who then go and sign off on mm. budgets. So... Um, uh, you know, that's and also the lobby groups and the and the, the the interest groups will then will pick up that this particular myth is uh, suits their agenda, and then goes and builds an F thirty five. So if we consider the current debate in America, I actually had this conversation with someone who called me up to complain about the recent um, the government's plans for Britain's defence, etc. All these things, and going, you know, I I, I can understand them cutting the Air Force and the C-130s, they're old aircraft, I can understand that. But they should be cutting the Navy, not the Army, because what you need in the Far East is infantry. And I'm going, That's always how well. are you going to get them there? <laughs> Actually, in I said, wait, the things you should probably be doing is turning the infantry into reservists and making sure you keep the C-130s and the Navy so you can deploy the troops out there when you need them and you don't have to pay in peacetime, they can just go and work to do their be productive in the Let's economy. Let's fight a land war in China, said no one is sane ever. No, no one wants <laughs> to fight a land war. And especially not with, with British infantry. There just aren't enough of them. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it, it's... Uh, uh, I think to, to, to get to develop uh, Paul's point, that the, the way you have to target it, it these things is you, you have to not just demolish the myth, um, with evidence, with resources and research, but you also have to present, you have to be very scrupulous about presenting a accurate um, th uh, way of going about things because it can be very tempting to overcorrect and go the other way. So to mm. slight tangent, um, but as uh, Jamie and Dr. Clark know, I'm also doing medieval reenactments. So I'm interested in armor. I'm interested in swords, etc. And when you watch the, especially the online community, 10, 20 years ago, you still do get people like this, but 10, 20 years ago, the katana was the thing. 
Yeah, the katana could yeah. cut through yeah. steel. A katana could cut through battleships. You wonder why the Yamato didn't stick a katana on the front and just ram through everything at the Battle of Samar because it was this sort of basically a lightsaber um, in the common mythology. And then people started pointing out, well, actually, that's completely overblown. It's completely untrue. And you had the com contrasting myth that European swords weighed like five kilos and were blunt as a butter knife and you needed both hands to, to swing them, etc. And that was wrong as well. And people were challenging both myths, but you got a certain degree of overcorrection. So you got to the point where every European sword was actually like two-edged, made out of spring steel that could be a meter long and you could twirl it around with two fingers in one hand. And the katana was now this bendy lump of iron that was only made that way because Japan had terrible quality iron ore. And there's elements of truth to both of those refutations of the original myths, but they go entirely too far and they kind of swap places and then everyone's now going oh yes well that's completely don't believe any of them and this, this yeah. goes back to the idea that nuance isn't sexy you've got to go yes you have to be either it's either be brilliant or or crap or yeah and, and that's the the, the 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 truth is in the middle somewhere and that's the bit that's so hard to find is and, and, and the truth I, moves the truth it is, is it does move. and i would also argue that within history there are myths that are simply now so entrenched you we, they they cannot be undone and there's no mm. point trying i mean for example custer at little big horn being having the long blonde hair with yeah. him they'd yeah. all shaved their heads before they were worried about typhus as it was and they, you know he died with a crew cut mm -hmm. he had the buckskin jacket i think but wasn't wearing that day but and they even interviewed uh Cheyenne and, and lakota warriors like 20 years mm. 30 years later trying to find out who had killed her oh i killed custer i grabbed him by his long blonde hair and i, I mm. so he didn't have long blonde hair then oh well it was someone else then but and and, and that and that because I've read a little bit. I've got a few books on the Bighorn. That has been academics have completely resoundingly said they had short hair that now. But mm. it just there's no you can't be heard. Same about Napoleon being short. The world has decided Napoleon was short. The fact he wasn't short doesn't matter how many books there's come out with an entire with a... complex called it the Napoleon exactly. complex about <laughs> short people and so, short mountain. So, at what point do you mm. give up and say okay, well that myth is too. Or should mm. should a historian ever try and give up? Or is it always important to keep on trying to do that? And again, it comes down to the public believing a myth being different to other historians believing a myth. If if a historian was writing a book about a little bit the little big horn and repeated the blonde hair myth, that would be annoying. Mm. But if an average person in a pub who, for whatever reason, pictures little big horn, pictures Custer with long hair, that doesn't do any harm, does it? No, I I, I think it's. <clears throat> I think it's def also definitely a case of pick your battles um, because if you go, if you run around trying to correct every single myth mm. out there, you, you're going to end up chasing your own tail and not actually accomplishing anything. Whereas if, if you, if you go for the ones that are actually important, the ones that are actually affecting people's decision-making these days, or the ones that are just so hilariously wrong, they end up with people forming massively wrong conclusions those are the ones you need to go after the 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 small ones like you say like whether or not custer had long hair it, if you as a historian know that he didn't that's fine whether or not joe blogs down the road thinks he did or not it's it's not exactly like anyone's making it's yeah. massively important decisions on what the future of the u.s army's hairstyles is going to be based on that's true on on that Actually, uh, you'd almost hope that they did. He did have long hair, and that would probably help the women in the U.S. Army out with the, their bun issue, because the U.S. Army seems to be obsessed with trying to give all their <laughs> female members 
various, uh, um, various issues with their hair because they keep forcing them to put them in very tight bonds, which is slowly pulling their hair out um, and causing sort of male pattern baldness almost on the poor woman. So, you know, maybe actually him having long hair would be a useful myth. That is something we haven't considered. Are some myths potentially useful? Well, I think generally, if if, if this is when one of you was, I forget who it was, was talking earlier. It, it was about, well, it's about the um, um, swordfish being obsolete. Mm. Yeah, it's about the sell it, selling of an article. If you if you're if you're if you're publishing a newspaper or whatever, and you want to get people to, it's that five second attention span span, mm. isn't it? And we we are bombarded with quality history and bad quality history all the time. So we're all looking and searching and scanning. A title that says something provocative will grab grab your attention that a way that a correct thing wouldn't, because you'll go hang on and you'll start reading it. So there could be an argument. For the 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 use of myths as a way of bringing people in to then get the audience to then have them spend time to unravel that myth. Yeah, you see it. You see you see it sometimes used both for good and bad on on places like YouTube with basically clickbait titles. Yeah, you, you almost want to do that in history. You can publish an academic paper or, or or a book that's mainly designed for other historians with a fairly mundane title, and people who are interested will read it anyway. But if you want I do think there is much as it's kind of a kind of hold your nose and and still and and deal with it. But I think when if you're trying to educate the general public, there is there is probably a certain percentage in exploiting myths, even if it's only for the front page to say this and then you like put it in the form of a question. People are like, oh, yeah, I want to know about that. Open it up and say your first page like no. And here's 128 pages as to why the answer is no or or, or that kind of thing. I mean. I, I think a lot of the, a lot I can of the give other... a classic example of that with my current with my book, which is just mm. about to come out, where I've called the tribal battle and daring class destroyers Britain's back pocket cruisers. Because mm. people are going course, to, be, want it, to know what on earth you're on about. Yes, mm. but also we all, you both know, and Paul might if you might probably pick this up from me on Twitter. I absolutely hate the phrase pocket battleship. I spend half my life shouting about how terrible they are. They are overgrown heavy cruisers. They are not in any way a battleship. Stop calling them that. But I'm shamelessly using that idea of a pocket something mm. to sell my book. Yeah. And I think the... I, know. A, a, a lot I of feel the pro- dirty, but it, if it makes <laughs> some more money, then I, and it gets more people interested in destroyers, because again, that's one of the myths of history, that World War II was all about the battleships, the cruisers and the carriers. Uh, and all yeah. the escorts are doing are the convoy war versus the submarines, and they're just there as background to the amazing submarines. And you sit there and go, this is half the reason we have so much trouble these days getting funding for freaking escorts. People actually believe an anti-submarine warfare frigate will always lose versus a submarine, and destroyers are just there to get hit by kamikazes. And it's not the case. And I think I think... The- this is probably going to tre- tread on a few uh, few poli- few minefields, but I think the politicization oh, how are you? I, I hate politics so much I can't even pronounce <laughs> the word properly. Politicization of history has been a major major detriment, certainly to the last couple of decades of historical research, um, because I mean you you look at films like the, using films as an example. Look at films like The Longest Day or A Bridge Too Far. They were made okay. They've got inaccuracies in them, 
but they were made largely with the help of people who were there. They were made by people who were interested in telling the actual story of what happened. Yes, and the people that were there would have been in the audience. Yeah. So they had to take some artistic license. Um, and there were some people, obviously, sometimes with some of the films, people were trying to tell a certain version of events. But broadly speaking, films like that are vastly, vastly more accurate than the majority of so-called historical films that you get these days. Because U571. these one. Yeah. Because these days it's more about making a political point or telling a politically slanted story that happens to be wearing the skin of a historical event than it is of actually being accurate. And I think you see the same kind of thing in public other forms of published historical media, but where like books and, and, and videos and things, because it, now that politics have become wrapped up in almost everything, I mean, you even see um and th this will kick off a few people i know um like in the recent dunkirk film uh by james nolan whatever you may or may not think about the historical merits of it it set off a bunch of people the usual suspects screaming about how the cast wasn't diverse enough and you're sitting there with your head in your hands going diversity in film is something that prob that does need to be addressed Diversity in the men who were on the Dunkirk beaches is not the background to fight this on. It's supposed to be about history. If you, if, we know what regiments were there. We know who was there. We've got the troop lists. Why are you now like... That is effectively, let's face it, a political issue these days and trying to shoehorn it into making a false representation of history to make people feel better these days who really have nothing to do with the subject and it has nothing to do with the subject at hand the point of dunkirk is not about this particular group or that particular group was was there the point of dunkirk is about the evacuation it's about the threat that britain was under it's about the fact that france was falling it's it's not about the the skin color of any particular person or regiment there and it completely misses the point but you see this happen time and time and time again in all sorts of things and another one which is a bit of a third rail especially these days especially in, in britain churchill mm. try having a sane and rational discussion about whether churchill was good or bad for anything whether personally for the british empire for people colonial people for people in the uk for the navy for the army for the air force and very very quickly it descends into a screaming match about how either churchill is the paragon saint and redeemer of britain and kind of a slightly more alcoholic second coming of christ or he's a vicious monster who who is owned the only difference between him and hitler was the fact that churchill won and people just set up in these two very politicized polar opposite views and scream at each other over the intervening distance meanwhile the sane historians are kind of bunkering down somewhere in the middle ground going well we, this is where the facts actually lie can you please shut up but the minute you stick your head above the parapet both sides try and try and knock it off which means and i would like to add to that sorry. one it's the the the, the, the i i have uh, the, he's definitely not a paragon and i would like to say this now for future because some of my students listen to this and i think mm. again it's a bit not a paragon he is also there is significant clear water between him and Hitler. A mm. significant clear water in that 
in the nicest way, he definitely didn't do the things that Hitler did. Yeah. Or it's, rather, it, Hitler again, encouraged Again, the truth is in the nuance, though, isn't it? But yeah. See, we're having this discussion in an era when everything is polarised. <laughs> everything has come, become extremes. And that's why maybe we have to accept the fact that this is not the era to try and fight the mythology argument mm. because we're... We have to wait for it to get more balanced again because I, it comes down to that thing, as you say, Churchill is evil or he's brilliant. Uh, mm. um, battleships are brilliant or they're shit. This commander is brilliant or he's awful. Uh, this was a success or it's a failure. We, we don't seem to be able to take on board that mid area of nuance because mm. it takes time and it takes people to listen to each other and it takes... Um, Tolerance and, and, and more and than it's... 140 characters or a one and a zero mm. on in the binary system. But I think yeah. the I mean, trouble yeah, is, it's... if you don't fight it, you'll lose it permanently. I think that's the problem, is my mind. Because when I look at it and go, and I, I there are many people who make the same point, Paul, as you did, that you know, this is an era where it's become like this. Do we have to wait? Uh, wait? And I go, well, the trouble is, I don't think it will change unless you make that case. Because people are busy. People do have all these things. And they have all these absorbing, interesting things which they can see in their life. And taking a one, a yes or a no position is easy and quick. And you don't have yep. to think about it. Uh, but, but just, and that's just, the trouble. And on. also, that can then cause all sorts of trouble up the hill. Mm. Yeah. Just, to, just to add a little bit more to what you just said before about it being lost. Um, that's why I, again, you know, that's what spurred me to do my website. Was because I could not find anything in any of the general bookshops at that stage, I was just a general member of the public who was had a passing childhood interest in um, World War II aircraft carriers. Um, apart from that one old little tattered paperback, I could find nothing about you know, a major part of the war, which was the experience of these, you know, British carriers and what they did, how they did it, and what happened to them. So I had to go and find it myself. So what, what what I did was I for my own sake because I wanted to put it all together I started writing up my own notes, and then it got to a point where um, I needed to do some practicing to build a website, and I thought well hang on I've got all this material here anyway I might as well um, improve my professional skills and um, you know, uh, expand my hobby uh, to kill two birds with one stone, and my motivation for that was simply if I publish this. If I put it out there and I make it easy for somebody else to write books about or, or, or prompt them to do that, then it's a win. And, you know, um, sure enough, since then, I'm not, it's not necessarily because of my website, but, you know, I, I'm glad to say that, you can, that there have all of a sudden been books focusing on these um, events and these, these ships, mm. which hadn't been there for 20 years. Mm. So um, it... it, it while this stuff might not ever be lost and it, it will prevent progressively get pushed further and further and further up the back and into the dark corners of the archives, which makes it harder and harder for everyone to find that material. But the pa and, paradox um, is, uh, though, sorry uh, to interrupt you, is that okay. as, as Dr. Clark keeps building up these archive of builds prompts and you'll build up your website and mm -hmm. I do stuff on my channel where, where the more content we create, the more we are boxing boxing ourselves into a room of people just like ourselves, making that information less likely to be 
jumped into by the complete virgin in if you know what i mean so we're in the in that same way that we all think mm. before an election or something we think the election is going to go the way we think it is because we've surrounded ourselves with the people who think like ourselves so you, you're then when something goes the other way you're surprised by it and you realize no but hang on i've been i've i've, I've created my own soundbox mm. uh, i have yeah, to say yes that yes, yes actually, and no because this is yeah. for example you know an armored carrier website is now discoverable through search engines whereas if it wasn't there all you would get would be sx class you know maybe a bit about akagi and kaga um if you're searching for aircraft carriers of world war Two. Mm. but now it's there and it's the same you know, dr clark has published his book on daring's tribals and battles battles which is accessible it's you, you jump onto amazon.com or booktopia or something like that you do a search for destroyers you're going to get something other than the fletcher class and i, I, th I think it i think it has you don't it, understand how many how much hate mail i'm getting from people about the fletcher class because i haven't got them in the book and i'm going it's on british destroyers i'm sorry there's only so much space in eighty thousand words <laughs> and I think I think this is this is where it's kind of again it comes down to a kind of it's it's somewhat pick your battles somewhat almost a historical resistance army because yeah it's, you, you could the next time someone does a documentary again to use Churchill as an easy example the next time someone does a documentary about how Churchill was like single-handedly responsible for butchering half of the Indian population or something it would be very tempting to get, turn up and go actually that's complete and utter rubbish here's all the evidence but we all know how that would go. Um, it would just end up with someone screaming, "You're a racist," and yeah. and 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 people lambasting you on Twitter until somebody fires you from something. So there's no point in in picking that particular fight. But in as in a kind of historical in a sort of analogy to the to like the resistance in in Europe in various countries, you still have to keep that little that little flame of actual accuracy and nuance alive, and. I think this is this segues into something else, which I think is very important and somewhat actually overlooked in history, not just in in mythology, which is that you have to have, as you pointed out, a way in for people who are unfamiliar. You can have like a, a 500 page tome that dissects everything into the minutest of detail and provides the absolute most balanced and nuanced of views. But let's face it, very few people of the general public are going to read that. Whereas if if you've got a kind of a pricey intro that gives the basics, but also offers a somewhat balanced view. If someone's just interested in passing sort of passing interest in it, they can look at that and say, oh, OK, maybe it's not completely black and white. And if that's as far as it goes, that's as far as it goes. But at least they've read something that isn't completely one spectrum or the other, or they've heard or listened or watched to some something that isn't a complete polarized monolith and then if they want to develop that further they can then look for another stepping stone which might be a little bit more in depth and then if that continues to interest them either broadly or they want to zero in on a specific they can look further in depth still because like with what what you're well at the moment not doing but will be doing hopefully when the travel restrictions let up in normandy someone who's coming to the beaches of normandy is part way through or possibly at the end of a very long journey the average person on the street doesn't go oh, you know i'm going to go and wander around normandy and be told about the normandy landings it'll start off with 
an interest in World War Two, yeah. then an interest in Normandy, or then fam- an interest in amphibious yeah. landings, and eventually it leads them to that point. And I think that stepping stone process is what actually is missing quite a bit in history. You have a lot of very, very good historians who can write very, very good, very complicated books, but they're never going to reach the general public because there's that massive gulf between what they're doing and what the general public is doing. And that's one of the things I try to bridge with what I do. That's that's the reason why I have things like the five minute guides, because, yeah, you're never going to tell the full story of a class of ships or a ship in five minutes. I mean, there, there's books you can beat someone to death with on a single ship. Mm. Um, you can't summarize that in five minutes. What you can do is get someone interested in that ship in five minutes mm. and then and they then, go on to. And then when they discover, you know, through your five yeah. minute guide, they hear about it had an issue with its um, armor or something. Yeah. And then they can find your episode which drills down into that at the yeah. engineering level yeah and it's, it's, it's yeah. this is what I, this is what i call scaffolding mm. you don't need to build the you know taj mahal straight up straight what you need to do is provide a sketch outline of the taj mahal first and from that you build it into a set of drawings a set of plans um, a set of steel frames, and then finally your polished marble um, wonder of the world. Mm-hmm. So th- the point is, is that you've got to keep that same shape from the whole through the whole process. That sketch mm. has to be recognisable as the Taj Mahal there in front of you as you're standing in front of it. So while that sketch isn't going to have every seam and every joint and indicate every the every different type of material that's in the Taj Mahal it's also not wrong it's just not complete it's just not complete and by being not complete means you miss out on very large sections of the Taj Mahal but that means you can just drill down a little bit further and you you need it you need a, a, a chain where you can drill all the way down to the bottom which is why I say there are things like you know it you need to have material that's discoverable. So mm. by publishing things that isn't that aren't popular but are accurate, we'll find a way that it's affordable. So you don't lose tens of thousands of dollars trying to publish a book that nobody's going to read. Um, publish it no, as a you know, um, as a referenced linked website. You know. Yeah. So and 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 this I think this is where the combating the mythology comes in because you do get some of very basic entry level things and that's where people sometimes you get things that are oversimplified and either reinforce or build the myths in the first place um yes. and it, it it's that very fine balance between making something interesting enough to engage people's thought processes whilst remaining accurate whilst not making it too simple too simple to the point that you're making it actually false and um, um it's like I mean, dunkirk let's, let's take dunkirk it was a yeah. very simple story um what what do you think that's over over oversimplification um well apart from the fact that the spitfire had um, infinite fuel tanks of uh, <laughs> ammunition um yeah oh, what the, it was you know the fuel was fine they mm. can that, that was part of the plot point was it was running low on mm. fuel but yeah. for an aircraft that had what two and a half second firing time 
That thing never runs out of ammo. Yeah. Yeah. But there again, I've been having to. Uh, I stopped watching James Bond years ago because he has a nine-round clip and it keep, it lasts forever. <laughs> but, but I mean, uh, uh, but that's just me. Everyone else can enjoy James Bond quite happily, and I don't mind. It doesn't really matter. But, but that's I the point, to, isn't it? So uh, it's, 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 that's why I raise the Spitfire. Is that a problem? Is is no. the, is the sketch of Dunkirk made made in the movie? Is that sketch anything worse because the Spitfire had uh, infinite ammunition, or is it wrong in the same sense that U five seven one was a sketch of capturing the key Enigma machine? Yeah. Where yeah. they replace we all the be... bricks of Americans. Mm. Yeah, we need to be looking at this as on a broad front. In that one of the things that I think is going to help is historians using a wider variety of people who are experts in their field, such as communication, such as how memory works, such as advertising, you know, and <laughs> that the, if we're going to start getting the message across, it's going to be on that broad front. You know, I mean, I've done some stuff on my channel like about comics. So Garth Ennis, who's who's does the Punisher and the boys and stuff, but he does these World War Two comics and they're really, really well researched. And he since making contact with him, he I think he's now realized he can start contacting historians as well. He's he he reads his good books. He reads yeah. the right stuff as well. But I think because he, he has an influence comics have an influence video games have an influence movie makers yeah. make have an influence and those crappy little five minute articles online have an influence so it rather than historians going but that's wrong it's perpetuating a myth we need to be more in, uh willing to engage communicate reach out to these writers not aggressively not dismissively and saying i think what you've done with this article is actually you've 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 <laughs> reinforce an idea that we now are thinking isn't actually correct have you considered yeah. this have you considered that because mm. things are things aren't like they were when we were kids things yeah. now can be changed there are new cuts of things that four-hour justice i don't watch those yeah. kind of stuff but the, things can be amended in a way now that they couldn't be 30 years ago books are printed in shorter runs second editions come out quicker so there is maybe hope that that, that things can be um can, uh, ideas can take hold or correct ideas can take and, hold and it's very much yeah. as you say it's very much in the way it's couched uh, so yeah. you, it's, it's very much if you couch it as being but we, we now have discovered this and we've realized that this influenced that so um, to say that well actually no the swordfish isn't obsolete because we now understand better or we now remember better or we've we've now found the documents or something like along those sort of lines to say that it was a deliberate choice made to because it was the only way to meet a need and yes there was a lot of com complaints by its air crew that why the hell were they sitting in open cockpits this was horrible especially if you're trying to fly the damn thing in the atlantic um yeah it was by no means a perfect aircraft it had a heap of problems but it was reliable it could fly in any weather and it could fly at any time, which provided the need, which, which met the need, the desperate need for it could fly a long way, which was really, really critical. And it could carry a lot. So, yeah, th these this is. But by I... saying that, by, by saying that you're you're painting a different picture as opposed to attacking um, a person who holds a yeah. very widely accepted widely written view of the swordfish 
I will say though, as an academic, it's just uh, just add in this though. And I do YouTube. I of course I've done a few TV programs, mostly Mysteries of the Deep, but a couple of others as well. And I've done. uh, I do armchair admirals with Drac on a regular basis now. I've been asked to do that. And I enjoy doing all that, and I enjoy going out to the wider group of uh, going out to wider thing. The amount of pushback I have from colleagues, which can be quite nasty, not of older, and not just of older, some of the older colleagues. I have to admit, most of the ones I really respect haven't pushed back. But even some of my generation of, why are you doing that? That's unacademic. You shouldn't be doing YouTube. You should be doing journal articles. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be doing that. And you sit there and go. But all you're doing is talking to each other. Yeah. All you do is talk to each other. And that and enables and that enables things like U571. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I have this big problem because uh, one of the interesting, you, as you point out, Paul, um, you were saying how, you know, people talk, they just have their friends and then that get, they get surprised at election results, these sort of things. I don't know if I'm weird or yeah, something, but I have a large number of friends who are completely opposite political spectrum to me. We are quite happy to being friends. We've been some of us have been friends for years, long before we had a political opinions on started voting or these things, and we can still be friends and we get together and we chat in normal times of course. So I often have quite an, an accurate idea, and quite a few of the friends who are of different political spectrum than me will often come to me and go, which way do you think this election is going? And I'll be quite honest, I'll say, I don't think I'm my side's going to win, or, you know, uh, you guys are going to win, or, you know, that sort of thing. And more often than not, I'm fairly accurate and fairly right. And they sit there and they go, you know, I, I talk about, but then there are colleagues of mine who are in the same queue of Both. party as I am, mm-hmm. Who completely cannot do that? And there are people I know in other parties who completely do not, who will not uh, have no concept of having friends or having people outside, and they cannot answer, and uh, uh, they cannot understand when they lose. And honestly, they look like babies when they lose. Mm. I mean, I was in a count once, and we're in Surrey, okay, mm. and there was someone of another party who had thought they were going to win. This was back when there were European Union elections in the UK and thought they were going to win in our borough. And the party which I had literally three tables of votes on the back and all the other parties were combined into one table. And they were crying and sobbing because the people in our borough were apparently all sorts of bad, nasty things because they hadn't voted for them. The ists and the isms. (laughs) Mm. And I sat there and went in a nicest, I, I was tempted to go up to her and go, in the nicest way, your entire pamphlet, which you put out, was slagging off pretty much most of the people in this borough for various reasons. Because you were saying they were using, to, they had too big a cars and too big a this and too big a that. And the reason they, you didn't offer anything, you just said, we've got to get rid of these big cars. You didn't then put in there, we've got to improve the transport services. But also, this was a European election, which was nothing to do with that. And people just vote how they feel like. The, 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 the trouble so, but I didn't. But they were literally so, and I was going, how can you get like that? How in a modern world, can you, and then it happens in history, the amount of times, and I have academics, and I have been at academic conferences where... I have 
literally, and this is going to come right, I once made someone cry, and I didn't set out to do it, but they were talking, they were doing their paper, and they said this thing that submarines were the only ships which didn't have a medical officer in the Royal Navy in World War One. Every other ship in the Royal Navy would have a medical officer. And they were a PhD student and their supervisor was sitting next to them, chairing the panel and the supervisor went, yes, that's completely correct. That's it. There was some supporting moment. And there are a lot of people in the room, including students, and I couldn't not ask the question. And I put my hand up and said, excuse me, that's wrong. Destroyers didn't, trawlers didn't, lots of small ships didn't have medical officers. The Royal Navy did not have an infinite number of doctors to go around. They might have medics who had some limited medical training, but even that wasn't amazing in World War One. And this person was going, but no, no, my research is all it's all summaries. And I'm sitting there going, you are a 20 something year old human being act like an adult. And this is an academic conference. So that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, I, I think that I think that a lot of it, it comes back to what Paul was saying about effectively bubbles, little um, but bubbles of, of thought and echo chambers and and combined with the polarization it, it moves everybody into these own little things where they convinced they're convinced of the of what they think is the truth and all they hear is what everyone who agrees with them is saying and and that's kind of the end of that as far as they're concerned so the the minute someone comes in from the outside and says well maybe something you think is actually incorrect in some way it's like in, it's immediately heresy and burn the witch which is hilarious because as you say we're supposed to be a modern and advanced society but we're regressing back towards the this person doesn't think like us burn him at the stake <laughs> with his strange and foreign views which like literally we're, we're, not even the not even the medieval environment <laughs> was actually like that i think we need to we need to find a few armor piercing shawls to uh, explode among the villagers yeah and, and, and who, who, who disagrees with us? We can uh, try and get online. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is where surely we, we've got to we've got to develop the skills. Say we people who've got historical points about myths, bring it back to the subject matter of this mm. discussion of how to communicate that to the people who are perpetuating the myths, explaining what the danger is of perpetuating that myth, and packaging it in some kind of um insult compliment sandwich where you say thank you very much for talking about the navy in world war ii we really like new writers at the so-and-so publication so that's that's your compliment then you say ah the problem is you perpetuated this myth that we think is is there and here's the reason why this is doing damage there are people who've done this work on this for 20 years who spent a lot of time correcting this myth and you've just kind of undone it with one thing but here is the here is my contact details please let's have a discussion about that and then you finish it again with a with a compliment again mm. because mm. there is i mean i'm i'm guilty myself of when i see something that's wrong i kind of mm. get hostile i or i get i i laugh at it i treat them with you know not necessarily to their face but i kind of oh come on. maybe i maybe when it's I the 30th or 40th maybe time maybe i should reach out and communicate and and yeah. 
Yeah, like you were saying at the beginning, though. Like you were saying at the beginning. Just add one thing quickly. I've never seen Jamie smile wider than when Paul said, "Let's get back to the topic." Jamie's never had that support from anyone else. It just—it was just the full beam smile came out. Someone else is backing me up on getting back to the topic. But I think it—it combines. I think part of it is also it combines what what Paul was saying and what Dr. Clark was saying when it comes to history. I think one of the myths that we have to attack quite strongly and demolish is this idea that it is beneath a serious historian to talk to the general public. That that is the worst myth of all because it's not just history. It's every form of academia, whether it's it's maths, whether it's physics, whether it's medicine, whether it's quantum mechanics. Mm. Um, Mm. And, you know, basically the way that knowledge is advancing so quickly now mm. you, you really th- these people that have that attitude are a great danger of recreating that world that you mentioned a moment ago drag where strange people wearing funny symbols on their clothes would get mm. burnt at the stake because they spoke a completely different language and they spoke heresy mm. that nobody could understand and they committed acts of magic mm. now that's what modern genetic scientists do every day. Um, and they fail terribly at explaining, um, you know, what they've just done to a crop. Mm. So, you Look know, the um, we're having currently around vaccines at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when, it, when it comes to history, that's this is the kind of thing. It's like if you if you're a serious historian and you know a lot about a subject, that's great. But um if you're the only one who knows it and you, you know, your, your group of friends are the only ones who knows it, it doesn't actually have any benefit to people as a whole. Whereas if you go out and you're able to talk to the general public and you're able to inform 20, 30, 40, 50,000 or more people to listen to or watch you or read what you've written or whatever, well, okay, maybe the person who's doing that, whether that be myself or, or Jamie or Dr. Clark or whatever, Maybe we don't know every single fine little detail that this very specific specialist historian knows about it. But as long as we've got it, as long as we've got the details we are presenting correct, I think if we present those those correct details, even if it's not the excruciating fine detail, to an audience of tens of thousands, that's actually far, far, far better for history as a whole than someone who can count the number of rivets on a King George V class battleship, for example, but only ever talks to about the same dozen people. And this um, is where being able to explain history, right, mm. sorry, to write about history, you've also got to be able to judge your audience. You've got to mm. understand who is this, what do they want to know, what's their starting point, what do they want to have achieved at the end of this engagement, whether it's a person-to-person chat, whether you're appearing on a podcast, going on a TV show. And that's, I mean, when I'm going back to my normally tours, when I do them again, if I do a two-day American tour for Americans, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so I start at Lafayette, west of San Marie where the 82nd Airborne held the bridgehead over the Murderer River. Now, without me thinking about it, during the conversations in the van on the way up, and I've done some basics about drop zones and the, the o- overview of how Overlord was 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 set up. Mm. I have made my decision when I get to my first point as I walk across towards La Fiena, how I'm going to refer to my my heroes. Now, on some days I will say, and these are men of mostly A company, some of B company of the 505th. Some days I'll say it's the 505th. Some days I'll say 
it's the 82nd Airborne. And some days I'll say paratroopers. And I might have to say in brackets, American, just to reinforce that. Mm. So I, I've seen, I've, I've gauged where their level is and I've gone one higher. And then as the day goes on, I try and maybe nudge them up a second level. So you, you, you're, you're, you're trying to be aspirational, but you mustn't start with the gulf too wide or they start folding arms and closing off. If you start going, oh, come on, you know, it's the 505th. They jumped into Sicily and they don't know it's the 505th. They're now defensive now because they came here because they've seen something Bright Ryan or Band of Brothers. And now they're they're combative against you now. And that could be the same thing with a historian conveying information to a podcast or to a website or writing in a critique. It's identifying because every person who has an interest in history, whether it is seeing a movie or reading a book, is a potential historian of the future. So mm. engaging them at the beginning and making them feel that they're on the right path. What you were saying earlier about the five minute guides mm. being a stepping stone is get them at that, get them at that point and then gently take them by the hand to the 15 minute guide hypothetically and so yeah. and so and then you're going to lose some you're not they're not all going to follow you down that path no but yeah. the one that you get at the other end who in 10 years times comes back to you and says thank you very much i know i haven't been in contact for five years i've just written a, a book about what do it is whatever it is and it's mm. because you were really nice to me 10 years ago and you didn't call mm. me a twat because i mm. wrote something that was wrong on my little my tweet yeah. twitter account or whatever it is yeah, yeah. Mm. and i That's agree nice. completely i mean it's and as as you indicated with with um with sort of when you when you're talking to people about soldiers on a particular bridge it's also about knowing your audience and what they're actually interested in right at the start so to to use an analogy from what's soon to be my uh, ex-employment but um so when i'm working for Croydon council my goal is to try and keep the roads clear with relation to construction traffic because there's an awful lot of development going on now as working for a local authority there's all sorts of very nice goals about reducing pedestrian casualties keeping the air clean um minimizing congestion all that kind of stuff all very laudable goals all need to be done and fulfilled but i'm talking to developers and contractors and to be honest, the developers and contractors couldn't care less about, to be perfectly honest, about have you met this environmental target for minimising your nitrous oxide emissions or um, there's an extra five minute queue on the Croydon flyover or anything like that. All they care about is, am I going to get my buildings built? Am I going to get it built on time? And how much is it going to cost me to get it built on time? So am I going to make a profit at the end? It basically the bottom line is money. Whereas the bottom line for a local authority is a completely different set of things. Well, perhaps you could argue, given that Croydon Council is currently bankrupt, maybe they should have paid more attention to the money part. But that's that's complete aside. But the thing is, I might come up and obviously have done with various ways of managing all this traffic. But when I present it to different people, I have to present it in a different way. If I'm presenting it to TFL or the GLA or... Um, and for those of you who are listening overseas, that's Transport for London and the Greater London Authority, or I'm presenting it to fellow colleagues in the council, I need to present it in a way of saying, this is going to reduce the number of pedestrians and cyclists who get knocked down, this is going to improve our traffic flow, this is going to lower our, the emissions and improve the air quality. I can then need to present exactly the same idea to the developers and say, you're going to have to pay this much, but you're going to save this much, whether that be in terms of money and or bad PR. Exactly the same idea, 
two completely different ways of selling it to the different people. But you need both of those sets of people on board to make it work. And it's the same thing with history, um, as I'm sure you found doing doing your Normandy walks. If you've got an American group of, of tourists, they're going to want to know about what the American army did most of the time. If you've got a Canadian group, they're going to want to know what the Canadian beach was like. If they've got a British group, they're going to want to know what the British beach was like. Some people want to know about the infantry. Some people want to know about the shore bombardment. Some people want to know about the air support, so on and so forth. And if you've got someone who showed up and say, oh, yeah, well, my great uncle was on Belfast as it was bombarding whichever one of the British beaches it was. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. If you then start going about, oh, yes, and over on Point du Hark, <laughs> you've lost them immediately mm. uh, and vice versa. So it, it is just as much about not, as well as presenting the correct information, presenting the information people are actually interested in knowing about, learning about. And then once you fill that need and they're like, oh, now I know more about this thing that I was interested in. What about all the ancillary things? That's when you can tell them about all the the extra bits and pieces. So um, uh, uh, to take another example would be like the Mediterranean conflict. If someone's interested in the Mediterranean war um, and they're looking at it from a British perspective, you could talk, tell them about the Battle of Calabria and the war spite landing, the longest range hit potentially in battleship history um, without getting the whole Sean Horse glorious <laughs> issue involved. Um, but that's what they'll initially want to know. And once they know about that, then you can introduce them. Well, the ship it was firing at, Giulio Cesare, was a heavily modernised old Italian warship, the same way that Warspite was a heavily modernised old British warship. And now maybe they're interested in learning a bit more about Giulio Cesare and the Italian Navy. But if you lead into it by just saying, well, yeah, we're going to talk about the Battle of Calabria and we're going to talk about the Italian Navy to someone who's interested in the Royal Navy, you've lost them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think this is the thing. It, I think I can't remember where I saw it. I think it may have been actually been on Twitter, which would be a rare instance of Twitter offering up words of wisdom. Um, but uh, whoever said it was, they said presenting is as much of a skill as the academic research side of things. Yeah, I, I think Absolutely. I saw that debate on Twitter and I agree with that one. It is. And it's one of the interesting things because I'm sort of straddled the two occasionally. In one of my gigs I was doing... TV gigs, I was I ended up filling in a bit for the presenter because they couldn't make it. So I sort of ended up doing a lot more. <clears throat> and people can get if they've watched the programs will guess which one that was in. Um and I ended up hearing a lot more than just the history one and just in sort of where my you know theoretically area of specialist knowledge would do, because I'm a bit of a generalist, and as we all know, I'm a massive geek. Uh, <laughs> and I love history. But it's it is a different skill. It is a different yeah. skill to present history than it is to get, learn history and know history. And it's one of the interesting things I talk about when I'm dealing with when I when I go for academic jobs. And this is partially, I think, from problems with academia. In that I know because I get told that I don't sometimes get jobs because I don't have a significant enough research profile in terms of journal articles. I haven't published enough in journal articles. I'm dyslexic. It takes me a lot longer to get something up to journal quality than necessarily it does someone else. Um, I, I admit that. That's an offshoot of my dyslexia. Not every dyslexic is the same. Some it, We all have our own issues. We're all, it's a broad, broad spectrum. In mine, it does mean it takes me longer to get something up to what is the polish level required for a journal article. 
But then I can almost guarantee, with, and I know which jobs this will happen with, about three months after the job has been awarded officially to someone else and they've got it because they've got a great research profile in the university, I will get an email followed if I don't respond to it by a phone call the following week from that department going, could you come in and teach these lectures? For free? They will, no, they'll pay me. They, they pay me. <laughs> but, and sometimes I make them wait because they'll pay me more if they call me rather than if they have to go respond to the email. Um, I do know which department that is. So, you know, I, I am good experience. And I end up going and teaching. And I, I end up talking, sitting there going, so, yeah, you had them. How about they're, they're brilliant? They're excellent researchers, excellent researchers. I can't help but notice that you've called me in two months before the National Student Survey. Yeah. Turns out they're excellent researchers. They're not good at, at lecturing. They either talk quietly or they mumble their words or they don't have any confidence up in front of the theatre. And that's you can have skills. You can be good. You can be good at talking to a room of 10 people of your peers or 30 of your peers. But talking to a few hundred of your peers in one of the bigger universities is a whole different skill set. Mm. I'm a historian in an engineering department at Kingston University, which is my, one of the universities I work in most often. And the amount of times they want me and they pay me extra to be in lectures which are technically engineering lectures being taught by engineering and being taught by engineers but the reason visiting engineers the reason i'm there is to control the room me mm. junior part-time lecturer will control the 600 700 students and keep them focused and stop them all playing on their games and talking over lecturer so that lecturer actually has a chance to communicate because that lecture themselves can't control the room well, and that's a whole like, different skill set. And academia is bad enough against recognising that skill set, let alone the skill set of going and talking to a wider group of people and adapting their abilities. Because, again, this is, I won't say which university I learned this in, but there is a university which actually has a policy where professors do not teach first years. And the reason they don't is because they've been in their subject so long, they cannot talk to people who do not already have a very advanced foundation in the mm. topic which is we go we go bang up when you said i'm gonna say going back on topic again yeah. and jamie smiling again is that going back to the very beginning of this this idea about myths that get hold the solution to that is not about the knowledge of these myths it's about the communication of these myths back to the myth perpetuators mm. and i in my in my house my, my my wife is a guide as well mm. a couple of years ago we were sitting having dinner and the subject of the other guides in Normandy came up, who are all mostly friends of ours. We've all got the odd nemesis. I've got that three. <laughs> anyway, um, we were discussing. Is the list written on a floppy disk? It's and, uh, you know, carved in stone with colours. Anyway, yeah. we were talking about the people who are the the guides who I would go to if I had a question about knowledge. You know, if I want to know where such and such division was and so-and-so, or what type of gun is it in that one there. Then we were talking about the people who we'd enjoy being out for a day with as a guide and we kind of gave our top 10s or top 20s wherever it was and the interesting thing is was how few people were in both category mm. and i think that is generally an issue is that it's all very well knowing the stuff but you've got to better communicate it and it's mm. all very well and there's people i would you know when people say recommend a good tour guide i then say what what are you looking to get out of the, out of the day Oh, so I can ask questions about that. Ah, this person. 
what are you looking at today? Well, I'm taking over my family and kids. And we want to have a good day. Ah, oh, this person. And it's mm. not necessarily some, there are a few who are both. Yeah. But often they are also in that kind of almost, there's a particular guy, a friend of mine I've known for years who we, he's got kind of his Vegas out, uh, act worked out. It's mm. the same act he's been doing for quite some time, but it's brilliant and it's polished and it's honed and it's insert joke a at, at yes, moment B, B, yeah. you know, and it's brilliant. And it's, it's a perfectly blended balanced overview to give to people who know a bit, but that's an extraordinary indication of how in the, in the guiding community where where you have to be able to communicate to people who are paying you. It's not like it's an accidental thing. There are people in universities who don't actually have to speak to people. It is about... This I know. Is industry... they, they, they are very interesting people to work with. Yeah. But this is an industry guiding where it is about telling other people for, and not just for an hour, nine hours. That's the typical mm. length of a guided tour. It's not you've got to hold people's attention for half an hour. It's nine hours. And... <laughs> And that's extraordinary. It's about as long as some of my videos track. So, yeah, from my, my, my point of view is, is that this is all going to come down to the level of communication about mm. these myths, not about the, 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 the person with the knowledge. It's about yeah. embracing the ways of getting across to people, being nice, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it with, almost with, reminds with, me of that scene, you know, uh, you've probably seen it, you, you know, the scene in Hot Fuzz. Where uh, the old the old farmer comes out, and you've got this four four layer line of translation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it's almost exactly that. It's almost that in some ways is almost a comedic microcosm of everything we've been discussing because you have the myth of you know this this crazy old far West Country farmer, completely unintelligible, comes out holding a shotgun. That's a stereotype. There's the myth there. And he's just like, oh, I thought yeah, that was yeah, one yeah, of my yeah, great yeah. uncles, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it, it goes through about three different layers of translation until you actually turns out he's actually very erudite and talking a lot of sense. And then you find out he has this horrifically large arsenal of weaponry, but knows everything there is to know about. And he's a completely different person from what you initially thought. But the only Again, this sounds like from, my great uncle. The only way <laughs> you got from point A from the stereotype to the actual fact was through this multiple layers of community of, of translation where it went from completely unintelligible to knowing what was going on and it's exactly the same thing we've got here as you say you've got the the myth is presented and the detail of what is actually the fact is completely unintelligible to the general public and it's got to be filtered through several layers until you until it's got to a point where that can be communicated properly to the to the right audience and there's different levels of doing that because you can get academics who believe um, a certain myth and you have to communicate to them in, in academic, um, which I think is pretty much its own language. The way you say in academic, uh, excuse me, don't, don't take a strong way, but I have, well, I, I haven't been to them personally, but I had a professor who was teaching me when I was a bachelor's who was at Tudor history conferences mm. and their level of communication was occasionally thumping each other. <laughs> and, you know, I have been at military history conferences, which are, theoretically more violent, which have devoted down to dart matches to decide which point is correct. So you are holding out a lot of hope for academia here that me, the academic, 
doesn't quite have. Well, uh, to be honest, I've, I've, I, the thing is, you've got all sorts, but you, you, I've seen some like Paul is looking slightly disturbed at his concept. <laughs> I, I, I've seen, I've seen some arguments that go back and forth between in in some of these, especially some of the older journals and such. I've seen some some arguments go back and forth between people who are very or were, I guess, because they're no longer with us, very respected historians, and the letters page. It, it reads like lost pages from the Silmarillion. <laughs> it's in such highfalutin language and half of it is in acronyms that even I have to go, hang on a minute, what exactly are they on about? <laughs> which, which, which exact an acronym is this and what era is this from? But And then you've got, from there, you've got different kinds. You've got the, the general public, you've got the educated public, the interested public, and that's two different point uh, periods. And then you've got, if you're trying, it sort of go, again, sort of looping back to what we were originally talking about, we've got people in politics you have to communicate to them in politicies um you've got people in the military and you've got to communicate they're like they you don't need to explain what dno or dnc or first sea lord is to someone in the, in, a, in the military but you might have to explain something that a politician would instantly grasp um like maybe the idea of pr <laughs> well Look, now that the clock's ticked past two hours, mm-hmm. I'm going to put my final thought forward, okay. which is this. When it comes to any issue, whether it's history or politics, you're always going to have the true believers on one side. You're always going to have the haters on the other side. They will always make up 90% of the volume on any given subject, but they'll make up 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. Mm. Out of that remaining 90% of the population, 75% of them don't give a damn. Mm -hmm. And that balance in the middle are listening to the shouting. And what they try and do is, in their own way, find out who's right. Then they will go on to a bookshop, they'll go on to Google, so insert generic search engine here, mm. and they will look. And you need to have that material there for them to find that is rationally, easily consumed, but also provides rabbit holes down which they can go. Yeah. So you've got your discovery page that's accurate, but then it links back to the Imperial War Museum or it links back to the original, you know, um, documents. And that even to a member of the public who's simply looking into the history of their grandfather, it's scalable, but it's also credible because they can see that, whoa, I've just landed on a, on a page that's so wildly technical, but I can see this was written in 1945 as an assessment of what, my, of the ship or of the event that my grandfather was on. So therefore, the, the page that I came from to, that linked to that, my, they might understand this, but it raises my um, belief or my, uh, my, my respect for the, for the landing page, the overview, the, the analysis piece that, that, that I, I came to. So therefore, I'm going to ignore the guys shouting to my left. I'm going to ignore the guys shouting to my right and start going down these paths. So... You need. This is why you don't give up on the truth, but it's also why you don't engage in shouting matches with 
those in the wings. You, and this is basically what sustained 30 years of journalism for me, is that you put down the raw data that's the inalienable, inalienable material as, as far as you can get it, because you can never get it complete, but you put it there, you make it available, you make it discoverable, and then you hope that that percentage of the population that can swing either way will then use that real information to inform their opinions and their decisions. And, you know, that's the only thing you can do because you're not going to win a shouting match, but you can win a credibility match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good place to yeah. to wrap things up, wrap things up since we are at now one minute 50 of recording. <laughs> <laughs> I did promise Paul it wasn't going to be. As well, long I've, I've got gonna... two more shows I've got on my own, but I've enjoyed this. But just one one last point I'll make is what Jamie was saying there is book, books and papers have got to kind of catch up with the with the flexibility of of online, isn't it? Because the way the way kind of YouTube and all that works is kind of like those old your old adventure books where if you want to go into the cave, you know, go to page twenty seven. Mm. If you want, because it. What we can do with the, the the internet now is we can skip straight to the sword fight if we want to, can't we? Or we can. Yeah. So books maybe need to kind of keep up, keep up with. So we're talking about an Italian cruiser, so and so now. Mm. Do you want to know about the types of armor? Yeah. <laughs> that this can be fit. Go to page seventy. If you want to skip to how they perform in combat, skip to this page, mm. because that way we people will be able to go at their own speed, if you like, and go to the level of the level of depth they want to. They can. As you were saying earlier, they can stick with the five-minute guides or they can go to the two-hour thing. But books are very rigid, aren't they? You know, I, was, I recommended um, Shattered Sword about Midway mm. to someone a couple of days ago. Yeah. And, they, and their first question was, how many pages is that? I, said, I don't know, but it's, a, it's quite a fat one. Oh, I'm not going to start it then. And you go, oh. So that, 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 that has therefore failed because it's too off-putting at the beginning. But if there was a way of presenting Shattered Sword in the sense of, have you seen either of the films Midway? Yes. Did you like the bit where Charlton Heston spoke to his whatever? And then you hook them in, and then suddenly, you know, like it is with binge watching, you say we haven't got time to watch a TV show, a, a film tonight. Let's just watch a bit of TV. And then six hours later, you realise you've watched ten episodes, and you could have mm. watched a film in the first place. So you, mm. suddenly, it's that idea of a book being very off-putting, or or a big long paper being, oh, I haven't got time for that. So you start, and it's baby steps. It's so you quite you a skill to get the sort of the yeah. writing and the book right. I have to admit, I I, I do find some, and this is the trouble with some of the academia, is that some of the books I swear are written for about four people to read. Um, I, I and you know then there's me. I'm trying to write my book and I'm trying to put in, well, kind of like Jamie's done with site. Is I want academic quality references, but I've written it. Tried to write it in such a way that your average person can pick up the beginning of the book, will hopefully be hooked because I put an entire cool battle on the first page, talking about this sort of, this one action on the first page, um, this destroyer's moulding, to try and hook the reader in, shamelessly, again. And, you know, it, and it, they can go through, and it would be a sort of... But it is, uh, yeah, it's difficult to get it right. Anyway, but you're never going to get it right. You've just got to provide the options, and you've got you identify holes to fill in the in the yeah. general lexicon. Anyway, I think yeah. seriously, we've got Thanks. things to do. I've got to go to sleep before I wake up for Armchair Admirals. I suspect. So yeah, 
We've got Jamie <laughs> thank you so much for, on charm or something. Thank, so thank you so for, much for putting up with us here in the bilge pumps. And, that was good. Uh, I enjoyed it. I think. Yeah. Hopefully you've got enough voice left for your next one. Yeah, no, so I've got I've got three hours to go of, of break. No, four hours okay. of break. That's okay. <laughs> All yeah. right. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank okay, you. cool then. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>